Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. You know, sometimes being a game changer is about being a wee young thing who's just jumping out of his or her skin to do something really, really early. Sometimes being a game changer is about a prodigious career impatiently assembling the building blocks of what it takes to do the work of leading change and innovation. Richard Owens is the Director of Learning at Woodley School. I think he fits into that latter category. He is a very esteemed colleague. He's a leader, a thought leader in Australian education, helping us to understand, in the words of his doctoral thesis, new schools of thought about how and why we might do schooling for today's learning for tomorrow's world. Started life as an English teacher and a media teacher, and since then, he's had global experience in teaching senior leadership and innovation roles. He's been a head of school, a deputy head of school. He's worked in Australia and overseas. He runs the annual Reimagined Conference, which is a participatory cross-sector gathering that tries to help us to think through what it is that we should be doing in learning. He's done so much in his career, and we're really, really privileged to be speaking with him today. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, go to aschoolfortomorrow.com forward slash thriving. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. How is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you this afternoon? Well, can I just say, I had one of the nicest crispy pork bun knees and mm-hmm. I've, got, I've got my Vietnamese iced coffee next to me right now. So I'm enjoying the multicultural side of the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy today. It's, it's, there's, no, there's no tofu in sight and it's condensed milk rather than oat milk in the coffee. Well, Phil, I'm a little surprised that you're purchasing those type of products out in, in, in um, Hipsterville or Fitzroy because we know that Sunshine would have much better Vietnamese products. <laughs> yeah, probably. Anyway, <laughs> enough of this nonsense, everyone. Let's get to our Game Changers guest here in Series 10. Can you imagine, Phil, we're in Series 10? It's outrageous. Wow. With our focus on future ready, future fit. Uh, Richard, it is just wonderful um, that you're with us today and we're really appreciative of your time. Uh, we have been big fans of your work and, of course, the work of uh, Woodley School for, for many, many years now. I'm going to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests, and that question is, Tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Adriana. It's a pleasure to join you uh, and great to be in the esteemed lineup of, of Game Changers uh, over, over 10 series. Actually, congratulations on that. 
So, yeah, I, I've had a, a, a long career in education, starting in secondary, as Phil was saying, in teaching English and media. Through a variety of roles, uh, pivoted to go teach in primary school before moving into middle school leadership, uh, a whole variety of areas. I suppose key drivers for me was really around how we can better serve young people to be the directors of their own learning, to have their own their own self-reflection ability, their own self-awareness, self-management. Um, and that's kind of gone through a lot of the innovation roles I've had from working uh, in Australia to overseas. I had a primary role to starting up centres for innovation in Singapore and now Australia as well. What is it about education and learning and school settings that continues to appeal to you? It's kind of simple in a way. The, the greatest hope for the future of us as a, as a human a human endeavour is really our young people, how we support them to become better learners, how we support them to engage with each other, how we support them to be able to take on an active role in shaping the future um, is critically important. And no more so than when you look at the wider context in which we live at the moment with so many so many challenges. For those of us um, who take huge, huge liberty, imagine you gentlemen are in about the same age of, as I, um, uh, we, we probably spent the uh, 1990s, 1980s talking about 21st century education and the change that was going to come and the volatile uncertainty. It's still not there, is it? It's still not there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think more and more so that reality is, is, is the truth, not so, so much for the future, but the reality in which we all live. But schools tend to be slow to respond to that dynamic en masse. So that piece around systems change is somewhat elusive as you <laughs> as you suggested there Phil but of course there's some there's some fantastic outliers doing wonderful inspirational work some of which have been doing it for a long time uh, and there's a lot of momentum in that space as well so so I want to pick up with this this idea of outliers versus insiders and the 21st century learning culture let me pick up on a phrase directors of their own learning which I really like self-determination theory self-efficacy adaptive expertise etc 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 seems obvious doesn't it it really seems obvious that we want people who can thrive in their world and chart their own course. But we don't like doing that in schools, do we? Why is it so hard for us to help schools to let go of the control and allow students to take control of their lives? Look, I think at large, there's, there's an element of path dependence for schools. You know, we set up our school system based around our assumptions of the way things should be. And then once those systems sort of reflect those assumptions and those beliefs, we can sometimes find ourselves trapped in those beliefs. So the perpetuation of stuff like um, ATA, which, you know, uh, came around as a, an, an efficiency <laughs> for consistency in terms of entry into tertiary, for example, uh, but now has become widely accepted and, and increasingly contested, hopefully, as a as the measure of success is really interesting. Um, so the unintentioned, unin, unintended consequences of the system we're set up make it more difficult to bring around change. So in a really grounded way, if you're teaching in senior secondary, um, you have a study design, <laughs> you have an exam-based system, you're um, trying to support students in, in, in working towards their future within a system that's very narrow, uh, narrow, narrow measures of success. And to work in isolation against a system, systems tend to push back pretty hard, is, is quite exhausting and, and challenging work for individuals, but also for schools who take that path. So... There's a complexity to change. And that example really is an example of how the system pushes down from the senior secondary end to sort of influence the culture of schooling the whole way down, really, in Australia. And it's, it's interesting coming back to Australia after being overseas and sort of seeing that, 
that play out. I want to take this further if I can. All right. So I want you to imagine that you're back in the day as a 25-year-old who's had, let's say, three, four years experience in the system. You're full of beans. You're ready to do something that's different. You've got some mastery over your classroom context at this point in time, and you're beginning to develop some subject mastery. What are your top three pieces of advice for someone who's got this spirit sitting inside them, who's contemplating 30 or 40 years within the system? How do you keep the light burning? Uh, Take risks, trust the kids, uh, and be prepared to fail fairly fairly often. What came to mind as you were talking, I was imagining back to being 25 with a lot of forward momentum and perhaps not a lot of wisdom uh, in a media studies class and and really working to create student-centred learning opportunities and really passing over the whole idea of broadcasting um, uh, an in-school news channel to a group of year tens of various um, quirks and, <laughs> and tendencies. And it was really around that idea of taking risks. We weren't going to get it right. And, the, you know, over time, those type of endeavours to push the envelope of what's possible, I've never ceased to be amazed by what students can do when they're given the opportunity often against the collective wisdom of people who perhaps have a more traditional conception of what it should look like in the classroom or how you should behave. So, yeah, three tips. I love that one, that one, Richard, because um, I have yet to ever set an expectation for a young person that they haven't risen to or exceeded and smashed and then created their own. Far too often our expectations are mediocrity and complacency and what's safe when we're prepared to, to step outside of that space, young people not only follow, they lead. And, and Adriana, I, I wonder just if that, if that last piece, not only trust young people, but actually enjoy the company of young people. That's why we go into schools is because we've got to love our work with young people and enjoy it anyway. Sorry, mate, I, I cut you That's off fine. there. Woodley School is seen as a, as a market leader, I believe. Uh, as, as a forward-thinking kind of creative contemporary school with, with academically rigorous programs that stretch, that challenge every part of the curriculum. And, they kind of, and, and the goal there is also nurturing self-worth and instilling this desire to contribute and make a difference. Is this the model for the future of schooling? I believe so. Um, it's a complete privilege to work at a school like Woodley A. I'd sort of moved off into doing consultancy and some system level work. And uh, there's probably very few schools that would really entice me back. So um, John O'Walter, who's now across at, at Kerry, tempted me, seduced me back in uh, mm-hmm. to Woodley. I believe it is. The, the beauty of Woodley's tradition going, it's actually a very old school, over 150 years old, but really reinvented itself in the 70s under the um, principalship of Michael Norman who was quite a visionary educator for his period of time. And it was around that breaking down the walls between school and the real world. It was around application of knowledge. It was around creating relational space. It was around uh, personal, social, emotional development. And while we've learned a lot in relation to what that can look like through pedagogy and curriculum and research and studies over that time, there's an essential truth to that vision which sort of goes through. So in many ways... It's really a matter of, for us, of continually challenging ourselves to engage with what's contemporary in those different areas. I was talking to a colleague earlier on today, because we talk a lot about mind, hand and heart, so cultivating people who can apply their knowledge to to solve real-world problems and and make a positive difference. And that that model goes back to the 1500s and (laughs) Pestalozzi. It's not not a particularly progressive um, novel idea, but I think what it is, it's... It's bringing it back to the importance of being human-centred of community, of that holistic growth, and that's that's kind of the driver for Woodley. Yeah, it's really interesting listening to you talk about a, a commitment to a real-world context 
So that leads me now to my next question. In December last year, 2021, the National Skills Commission released a report and that report was the, the state of Australia's skills 2021 now and into the future. And that particular report offered markers to help improve or inform the development of our education going forward. The biggest lesson about the future of work is that technological change is not a looming thing that's over a distant horizon, but it's now, it's happening right now. Mm. And, and many in education from my perspective is they're just simply late to to this to the use of it in, in any meaning, meaningful way and of course many were forced to in the last two years um, as we discussed off air before we, we commence this show what the pandemic of course has taught us is that without technology schools may quickly make themselves irrelevant and that we have this responsibility to lay the foundations for the innovation and growth of tomorrow and the interdependence of technical skills the human skills that you've mentioned, and of course then these digital skills are all kind of crucial in this realisation of the whole part of the learning. How do you think we can better support schools, school leaders and educators in the use of a pedagogy with technology to enhance learning? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, and I think that that ability to adapt um, for schools um, generally to maintain their their relevance, I suppose, in, in within society, but also for young people is critically important. I'm not too sure around the whole idea of digital native, but definitely growing up with an environment which they're just immersed in, in digital technology. Um, and it's there. A really grounded example, I suppose, which which I find interesting is the work we're doing at the moment with um, got a research practice partnership with MIT in the States and their Center for System Awareness. And it's grounded in the work of Peter Senge around systems thinking, system sensing, um, and develop developing a sort of collaborative, connected stance for dealing with real-world issues. And there's a focus within that work that's hugely relational. Um, it really does benefit from human engagement, in-person contact, um, reflection, from medita meditative sort of practices um, through to dialogue, um, engaging with diverse perspectives, all that sort of stuff, which can be fantastic. That can also happen online. Uh, and that's probably the revelation for me in, in having worked in that space for quite a long period of time is how readily it can adapt and then the opportunities that open up to be able to engage with different people around issues. The, the challenges that our young people are facing, they're, they're complex, they're interrelated. So if you take climate change, if you want a, a trigger for a, a year nine and 10 students, to it's going to really set their mental health um, shaking, unfortunately. Climate change is one of them. It's an incredibly rich topic to study, but it can't be solved in isolation. It can't be solved through the lens of a single discipline. It can't be solved through the lens of a single place. It can't be simplified. You can. <laughs> uh, if it was simple, we wouldn't have the challenge, really. So it's it's that, that angle around it. So what opportunities are there to really engage with diverse perspectives over distance around this from multiple angles across disciplines, Technology can enable that type of really human interaction, which is critically important. I thank you for sharing that. It's, it's, um, it has the capacity to be a great leveller and, and bring people into the classroom that ordinarily we couldn't have necessarily in our classrooms mm. uh, because of, of, of the tyranny of distance. The other interesting thing is that it's, it's not just this powerful connecting tool. In the example that you gave about climate change, technology is actually a solution you know uh, to to when we think about renewables and your re renewable energies uh, and and how that we can harness that through the, through our innovation and use of technology to capture that energy 
to better store it and to better utilise it and to call upon it when we need to and so on, whether the, the sun is out or not or whether there's no wind or not or anything like that. Um, so it's quite remarkable. It's a beautiful example, actually, um, through MIT, MIT's Sustainability Initiative, it's On-Roads Climate uh, Simulator. So it's basically a dashboard that allows you, uh, as a user, to play around with different solutions to climate change, um, from power to coal, you know, like source from, from fossil fuels and you know, we're, we're sourcing power through to usage, um, new technologies, as, as you were touching on, Adriano, mm -hmm. across this whole range of areas. And the beauty of the simulator is you can really use it in an upper primary context. Great support materials online, open access. Um, but equally, the people who have developed the simulator use it with congressmen and senators in the states to persuade them <laughs> to engage with the issue of climate change because it's got a lot of depth, uh, incredible science behind it, as you probably expect from the MIT crew. So it's this... It's its ability to use technology to really, uh, if you like, visualise and empower people to engage with complexity, which I think is quite exciting around the future because if people feel empowered to engage with complex issues like that, it helps to mitigate that mental health issue we talked about before, but also become more solution-focused, which is <laughs> which is what it is. But without, without that technological leap of what we see with these more modern simulators, yeah, it's a lot more challenging to, to get into that. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too because there were many schools during the pandemic that utilised the power of technology to actually tap into the emotional well-being of the young people in their care or and their staff through mm. pulse surveys, you know, and checking it. I mean, you, you guys at Woodley were great exponents of, of testing the pulse of your community during that period of time. And, and uh, you know, we feature some of your work in our Wellness by Design Toolkit. And I really appreciate you sharing that and, and how generous you are in, in letting our, our followers and listeners uh, see that from a School for Tomorrow perspective. Again, uh, it's what we discovered, uh, and I don't know if you did at Woodley, but what we discovered with the schools that we support is that through this technology piece, they, just, they learnt so much more about the young people in their care in terms of their personal circumstance that they didn't necessarily have prior to that. And technology enabled that because the young person felt safe in that space. And then they, and the young person also knew where that information was going to go. So they knew the moment they pressed the happy face or the sad face or the, you know, the, the excited face, they knew that their, their pastoral leader or their or the year level coordinator or their head of house or whatever the context is of the school was going to learn a little bit about how they're feeling at any given point. And of course, Schools then responded, didn't they? They responded really rapidly uh, in, in circumstances like that, whether they had to then engage, you know, their school counsellor or, or even go beyond that to, to partnering with medical practitioners to support young people. But the discovery was large. I want to keep down this line, though, about discovery because, you know, the World Economic Forum continues to advocate for a skills revolution, right? Uh, and many other organisations do. What do you then believe are the fundamental skills young people are going to need to navigate today's and tomorrow's world of work? It's a great question. Um, I think there's some core capabilities. The ones I sort of touched on there, I mean, there's specific complex competencies, which we're quite familiar with, I suppose, in terms of communication, collaboration. There's a universality around those and transferability around those, which are really important. And, you know, there's iterations until the cows come home of six C's, four C's, et cetera. So I, I think that works 
maintains its relevance. I would, I would probably, uh, yeah, hark back to the comment I was making before around the the work we're starting to do with compassionate systems, which is really around that ability to um, engage with complexity. So to be able to um, use ways of thinking, tools, practices that are really allowed to analyze, break down, uh, appreciate, um, understand complex challenges complex problems i think that capacity is critically important yeah. whether it be in the context of business if they end up in the you know in a workplace increasingly we see application within the university context through professional degrees etc where it's really around the application of what you know but i think that's the reality of living in the next 50 years we'll be dealing with those complex situations so i think that ability to engage with complexity is there i think so there's an adaptability piece there isn't it really as an as, as, a, as a fundamental skill how are we going to adapt and and be comfortable in ambiguity completely and what i love about it is it's a it's an individual capability but it's also a collective capability yeah yeah i think sometimes uh and, and to our own detriment uh we often think about individuals um and of course it's it's, it's all around is all about being human-centered and that's fantastic but that ability to cultivate that collective response so the second capability I, I would refer to is around embracing diversity uh and that ability to sit with and understand diverse perspectives so in the climate change example um we can say let's just shut down the coal industry tomorrow of course if you're in the hunter or another area with quite a strong coal, that's your uncle's job or you know yeah. the tradition of the community and how that works so uh, that ability to sit with that, a lot of the issues we engage with around gender, culture, uh, all those critically important things about how we how we function as a community mm-hmm. are really important there. So that's an emotional intelligence piece and, and, and a deep awareness about uh, social and cultural awareness uh, that you're talking about because this diversity piece is, is not just limited to, to gender, but there's a, there's a race component, there's an ability component, there's an age component, and, and so on. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting too because sometimes we, we focus on what's out there, and, and one of the tools we use for uh, engaging with both staff and students around this is you know the uh, well worn ladder of inference, which is really around checking your own assumptions. What data are you looking at? What 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 beliefs you're building upon that? How's that beginning to influence your behaviour? But we we can't always influence we definitely can't control how others respond in a given situation we can definitely be aware of our response and our interaction so very much around that personal growth that's there so i I think capabilities like that are are collective both at an individual and collective level are critically important to be moving forward along with the others there I, i would also put in things like sustainability literacy intercultural understanding all right, boys. So I'm really, really enjoying the conversation that's going on here. There's a, there's a really gentle interplay. I like the gentle tone, but I also like it. There's a whimsy about it too. There's a, a playing in the liminal space, which is so very, very important. And of course, Richard, earlier in the conversation, we talked about the difficulty of working in schools where they, they get, A, they get rusted on practice, um, you know, and, and and as systems, they're designed to replicate what was and not play in the space of what might be. And very quickly, people can lose touch with the, you know, the, the all of the sorts of key aspects of humanity that you're talking about there, you know, all of those aspects of, of the character of a person that will actually enable them to thrive in, in circumstances. I mean, if, if anybody imagined that anybody could seriously prosper in our world in any way, shape or space without being able to deal with ambiguity, you know, there's a thing. All right. So let's go straight to assessment, shall we? Because let's just burst this bubble and go <laughs> straight to the practical realities of school. 
all right? Because if it's not for assessment, it doesn't count. And we know that. And some of our colleagues rail against that. I think it's a very important statement. And I honour that when kids say that because kids are very busy. They've got lots of stuff in their life. And the way we ascribe value to the things that we want them to partake in and demonstrate their metal in, to their mark and their measure, you know, talking about their character, is through assessment. That's, that's what we do. We make it tangible. You've been associated now with some really interesting organisations doing some really interesting things around things like learner profiles and what we would call a graduate, you know, culminating towards a graduate profile. You've already alluded to, shall we say, problems with the ATAR system. And we're just going to leave it there. And Adriano, no, this is not your signal to go on a rant about, <laughs> about the ATAR. Thank you very much. We know your views. We know my views. I suspect Richard's much the same. So you, you worked, you, you, you've got a role with um, the Mastery Transcript Consortium in Australia, which is a brilliant organisation um, from the United States. There's places like EDAPT Education, places like Learning Creates Australia. There's even a, a funky little outfit called A School for Tomorrow, which is playing in this space of learner profiles. How do we measure the seemingly intangible? How do we take the stuff that's in the liminal space and put it under the spotlight in a way that's actually constructive? Mm. I, I totally agree with you around the importance of measuring what we value. And of course, um, there's a complexity once we start talking about things like complex competencies. Not that there hasn't been ways, frameworks, progressions in that space beyond education or within education within our go back through Victorian history with the VELS, Victorian education system, Australia with the CARA, there is development, uh, developmental progressions there within it. So there's an idea around that. The, in coming back to Australia, um, as Adriana was suggesting earlier on, we, we're very responsive to the school community. We engaged the school community in an appreciative inquiry around um, strengths, opportunities to improve, aspirations for the future, what it might look like. And as a result of that, they gave some pretty clear directions around the, the idea that they were looking at uh, our holistic education. They wanted students who were compassionate, creative, um, resilient, who could collaborate around challenging issues, who were, you know, had that real intercultural understanding and, and respect. And they're interested in how do we, how do we capture and communicate growth in those areas? And that, is of course incredibly tricky, but a great challenge. So we reached out to Mastery Transcript in 2018. I'd written an article for a journal uh, that featured Tony Wagner, and he was doing some work at that stage with helping to get it, help MTC create a profile. And we reached out for a number of reasons. One was to connect to people on a similar mission who were doing something interesting around capturing, communicating. So not so much just calling for a change, but actually doing something pretty concrete around it. And what was, what was great and remains to be a great strength of MTC is the community of practice, so like-minded schools, very diverse schools, but like-minded trying to um, support holistic development of students and how do they capture and communicate that? How do they measure? One of the interesting challenges we encountered here, of course, is, you know, while there are parallels with America or China, MTC is global, so the schools all over the world who are tackling different issues that are relative to their particular context, we recognise Australia's got its own quirks in terms of its admission system, which led to some collaboration. So um, we had a collaboration. We reached out quite early on to connect with Sandra Milligan, who um, many of you, I'm sure you're both aware of, uh, fantastic, fantastic thinker and leader and wonderful, a wonderful, warm person as well. Great, great to spend time with Sandra. And she's incredibly driven to really develop what is essentially a recognised capability framework, not so much as a static piece, as an, as an evolution that can 
can accommodate the aspirations of communities. And that's kind of that's kind of the the short short answer, I guess, Phil. In that I see the answer is having this really strong research base, uh, research based capability framework that can evolve, but that also supports not in a standardized way, but by having standards, localized innovation. So that if your community, for example, has a strong First Nations connection, mm-hmm. you can really create a space for engaging with conversations around cultural competency, what's what's valued. One of your Game Changers alumni, uh, Haley, is uh, oh, yeah. awesome just to uh, sit and listen to, to her. her See, what, 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 a, what a phenomenal, phenomenal what, human. Yeah, what a sorted educator too. Just the clarity <laughs> of her thinking is just, it's intimidating really. Yeah, no, she's amazing. Um, Richard, I and, don't understand um, why more people haven't been exposed to the First Nations uh, wellbeing structure. You know, the yeah, stuff that she shared with you guys and new metrics in, in that space through uh, Learning Creates Australia is such an impressive framework that you'd go, God, why isn't this already part of our, our, our vernacular in, in Australian schools? That, look, that, that mentioning of um, new metrics is an, is an interesting one, Adriana, because I, I uh, I've got a couple of sort of follow-ups and the first one is about building partnerships. Mm. So every school's got to go on its own learning journey, but it's got to partner up with other organisations. I'm interested in the process that you've engaged in around your research practice partnership with the University of Melbourne and and how it's helping you to develop not just interesting insights, but actually useful insights and things that are of demonstrable value to your school community. Yeah, sure. So um, a bundle of the organisations you you mentioned earlier, so we've done, uh, we've partnered with Learning Creates, we've partnered with Numetrics, we're involved with MTC. We sort of launched ourselves full-heartedly into that space. And it was really around learning as an initial point. What's going on? What do people think? Uh, it's an emergent space. So, and sometimes it's a, a group of like-minded people looking at each other and going, yeah, we don't know the answer either. So let's find out. <laughs> the The work with New Metrics really came from, we convened a reimagined event. We had Sandra Milligan, um, Jim Tognolini from University of Sydney, uh, you know, a, a collection of point of views around moving beyond ATAR, I think was the theme for that day. And out of that, um, Sandra reached back out to us when New Metrics was forming and invited us to be part of it. Through Woodley being the type of school it is, she, she thought that would be a value partnership, but also through our connection to MCC. So um, we were really fortunate to be invited into that space and took the opportunity. On a really practical level, what, what has it given us? It's given us a connection to thought leadership, a collaborator, we work a lot with Sandra, both in the context of new metrics and with other partnerships and discussions at state level or with organisations as well, as people try to get together to, to solve some problems. And, and uh, you know, that work informed prototypes for learning creates that are now running, uh, I believe, wrapping up mid-year. So I'm looking forward to that report. So it's, it's really it's really that whole of, you know, connecting with experts, but also being able to co-create and co-design contribute to contribute what we humbly in many cases can contribute rubber hits the road so recently we we um and this was featured at reimagine last year adriano came along and we had um a young teacher passionate about education passionate about woodley's mission really exploring uh through the through the trial of new metrics progression for global citizenship what that might look like in the context of a year 10 french class so and the incredible energy, joy, <laughs> and and uh, enthusiasm that is brought to her practices. Shout out to Maya if she ends up listening to this. Can I tell you that that was a phenomenal session? 
yeah. I, I attended that session with her. And, okay, um, right. And uh, I actually think as she was presenting, may, may I, right? That's right. I can remember. Yeah, yeah. As she was presenting, I feel that as she was presenting, she was the revelations were happening, uh, you yep. know, <laughs> live because it, it transcended the linguistic skills that young people were going to learn through French. Yeah. That what was being shared there was far more significant, particularly around one of the things we would call our, our um, uh, one of our graduate outcomes about being a responsible citizen and understand mm. and having that kind of global perspective. Uh, yeah. I just got to say real credit, real credit to her uh, and what she was able to share about her own growth and her own learning in that space and what she was doing with the students. You know, that was that was the biggest revelation of all that that those young people were, were, were sharing their learning in such a pronounced way. So yeah, and look, that was a great example. And she it's brought it's brought some real engagement, um, a chance to trial some great approaches. We had a really interesting breakthrough recently where we're developing a, a sort of innovative senior secondary model at the moment, really at a prototyping phase. But the platform that Melbourne University uses to help inform assessment of these competencies can be used in a whole, across a whole range of settings across disciplines to record observations. So we know that these sort of transferable global competencies, um, general capabilities, however you want to call them, we may well address it in the context of a given unit, but it might manifest somewhere else. Teamwork might be in our extended um, expedition for our year 10 students, or it might be in the context of a science experiment. But that ability to record observations across that and to, and to get that uh, insight that comes from the Melbourne University assessment platform and going, actually, here's a, here's a picture of growth for that student in relation to competencies in a way that's really authentic. It's not in isolation and isolated. That's where, it's where the learning's occurred uh, based around observations. And that, that, for me, will be a game changer. It's hard work, but that work in future iterations as we continue to develop will allow us to really... Uh, engage consistently collectively with the holistic development, including uh, measurement and communication of, of, of growth. So I want to follow you up if I can, Richard, on that hard work, because people sometimes imagine that building the model and testing the model and drawing up the charts and all of that sort of thing is the hard work when it's really just the starting point. It's actually fairly straightforward stuff that we know how to do that if we apply a sort of a design thinking methodology. I don't want to pick on the new metrics project or any specific project that you're dealing with right now, because I don't think that would be fair to do that. But I want to take your mind back to the sort of mid 2000s and Australia bringing in, remember, remember we, we brought in values in education as if we'd excluded values from education, but we brought in values in education and every school ended oh, yeah. up with a poster of 10 yeah. values in education. Yeah. And there was a, massive um uh, had a picture of a soldier on it that's it that's it <laughs> yeah, yeah that's it antex and all that sort of thing yeah, but there was yeah. a there was a adriana there was a gran fiaccolate held in melbourne and all the usual suspects and um who still hang around conferences being the usual suspects were there talking about the importance of values and i remember watching the young teachers walk away from that so excited and so inspired and within a year it was all dead because when they got back to their schools, their schools didn't know how to harness the enthusiasm and the innovation of those folks. So, a wise one, Obi-Wan, how are we going to help schools? Obi-Owens. <laughs> I, was actually thinking, I was actually thinking Rick Owens myself. But it was oh, okay. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. How are we going to help schools to champion hmm. the people who are actually going to be the early adopters and the first followers? 
because once we're beyond first followers and we're into the in, we're into the groove of it, we, it might have a chance of succeeding. But how does it not end up as a poster on the wall in the library next to the photocopier? Well, photocopies can be very important spaces for learning <laughs> with the exchange of ideas. I, th- I think we really just need to create the types of environments we want for students, for the adults in the school. That includes parents, but it, it's incredibly important we do that for both leaders and teachers. So um, if we want an inquiry-centred school with lots of space for student agency, we'd better create an inquiry-centred professional learning program with lots of space for teacher agency. If we want a great uh, wellbeing program for our students, we should create great wellbeing programs for our staff um, and include leaders within that. Um, uh, uh, as you know, from being a, a school leader, it's it's incredibly rewarding and incredibly challenging how you create supportive uh, learning communities. Not just, I think that those principal networks, that wider network is really important, but also within the school, within the context of the everyday work, work is pretty important. So I think if, if we can manage to not just pay a lip service to that, but really reimagine our systems and structures so that they're central and not negotiable, that are there to support that teacher inquiry, teacher collaboration, innovation, um, then we've got a better chance of, of, of doing that. Schools aren't really set up in the traditional sense for innovation. They're, they always strikes me as, as interesting. I've spent time uh, with large organisations, Caterpillar and Apple, and looked at you know how they set up their training programs, how they set up innovation and uh, how they play around with space or, or culture or hierarchy or all that sort of stuff. Schools don't really adapt and change all that often if you think about the traditional structure of them. So how, how we go about that is needs to be intentional, thoughtful, sustainable uh, and a, a deep commitment. We have had an opportunity today with you, Richard, to explore your story that led us to a conversation around a model of learning that's happening right now in your learning community at Woodley. We've had an opportunity to explore skills about this kind of future of the world of work that are going to be really required to to support young people and us to continue to thrive. We've also had an opportunity to explore how we are going to measure those skills and the things that we value now in our schools and beyond. And there are great platforms that are going to warrant that practice in many ways as well. That's what a mastery um, transcript consortium does or eat up education does. The whole idea, that's about warranting the practice ultimately uh, mm-hmm. and, and, then, and then enabling the, uh, uh, that, that story to come through. We've also spoken about the value of partnerships. What I'm hearing really profoundly is that Woodley has engaged in a learn alliance with so many different entities and, and, and remains open to the possibility of that learning, bringing those people together. But the profoundness of that learn alliance is that even when you have all those clever people in the room and they don't know, they still are intentional about finding out. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and they're prepared to play in that space of, of trial and error, which I think is a great model for, for our for a, a school in learning, right? My question to you is this, because we probably haven't touched on this particular stakeholder. What's the role of parents in the future of schooling? Yeah, I, I think participant, contributor, uh, co-learner. It, it's, it, it's, we've got to get past the idea of um, here's the parent information evening where we're sharing information at you. <laughs> uh, that sort of one-way communication piece. So as a school, we, res- we recently sort of relaunched our institute, which um, I'm leading with some colleagues. And it's, it's really got that broad engagement it is around those research practice partnerships, it is with our staff and wider education, it is with our students, 
learning from those. It's also bringing parents in to have them as co-learners and partners and contributors. We've got some amazing parents. All communities have amazing parents, of course. What we can learn from them, listening to their stories, listening to their professional experience, listening to their aspirations for the young people and just engaging that conversation. It adds a depth which just acknowledges that that's the interdependence that exists in schools and always has. Uh, I was saying before about, you know, we're often called progressive at Woodley and in many ways it's back to a more human-centred, community-centred education. It's spending an afternoon with, we're, we're lucky we've got parents who sort of share the values and aspirations of the school and keep trying to push us further down that way, which is a wonderful encouragement. But I sat with our board a couple of weeks ago and they're the same, listening to just fantastic aspirations and the ideas they're sharing are as relevant if we're not sort of hung up on the traditions of education it's you know some amazing entrepreneurs and going have you thought about this have you thought about that and going well i have now <laughs> thanks to, thanks for sharing that you know is that how you went about that in your context and what if we gave you a group of students to do x y and z and alongside us and we're away you know it's that it's that deep participation and, and openness that i think is critical yeah thank you very much for sharing that it, it, it really illustrates to me and and no doubt our listeners, that they have to be part of the conversation. Mm. And they are an important part of the conversation because they are the primary educators and they have huge aspirations, not only for themselves, but of course their, their, their children. Talking about aspiration, my final question to you is this. What's your personal sense of the future? It's a very big question, Adriana. <laughs> in, in, in terms of education, I, I am full of hope. I see an abundance of challenges at a social level, uh, at a global level, in terms of where we are, how we relate mental health through to warfare, through to pandemic. There's an enormous amount to be wary of or feel for, feel for, feel fearful of, if you can ever pronounce that, pronounce that correctly. But I actually think I get a sense of momentum and movement where there's a deep commitment from a range of educators to supporting each other's work to develop these collective responses and not get it right, but to continually iterate towards developing a better education system that will be better suited to meet those challenges, which we're meeting now, but but also to, to create those conditions that will ultimately empower young people to be able to shift and change and respond to that complexity that they're facing in the real world. So I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly hopeful I think it's incredibly challenging, but you know, look, look back at the 10, 10 seasons of your uh, podcast. Some pretty amazing people, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and, and you know that's interesting because Phil and I have a privilege when we sit. It's a real privilege, I should say, when we sit down with with our guests because the one constant, even through people we've interviewed who have had some serious personal challenge, the one constant is an optimism and a hope uh, that tomorrow. When the sun rises, that light will illuminate new possibility. And I'm glad that Richard down there at Woodley, <laughs> you know, has that has that hope. And I think in the absence of hope, there's only one alternative, and that's fear. And and we can't live in that paradigm because that will just eat us up. Back to Star Wars, Adriano. Richard <laughs> Owens, the Luke Skywalker of school innovation. Um, what a great conversation we've had today. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining us. Thank you so much for walking us through your journey, the journey of your school, but also more importantly, modelling for us the research mindset that you need in a school to tinker and to play and to experiment, to work out what's going to work. And then, as you said so well, to iterate your way forward and to do it within that supportive 
ecosystem that you know we would call you know human-centered and technologically enriched and people and planet and place conscious and intentionally purposeful thank you richard thank you for the work that you're doing in so many different spaces it's been a pleasure having you on game changers game changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school produced by oliver cummins for orbital productions and powered by a school for tomorrow game changers is available on spotify apple podcasts Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.